following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Column one, what does column one do to explain Cinnabon? And what about creation in column one? What's the main point? What does it tell us in the biblical story? There's goodness. And so what's so good about Cinnabon? What's the greatness? Tell me the greatness. Cinnamon, so you got this like hint of virtue because it's supposed to be good for your cardiovascular system. Cinnamon is. And the delivery system of that cinnamon may have a lot of carbs and sugar, but even that just intuitively feels good. But that moves us quickly into column two. What's column two about Cinnabon? Yeah, separation. Separation from the goodness of God and the world he created means that when you're going through an airport and you smell that Cinnabon, and you've walked past these different salad places and um, chef whatever things, and then that smell starts to invade you, and you're like, uh, what, what are some of the negatives of the column two of the world's upside down? It doesn't work the way it's supposed to in regard to Cinnabon. Yeah, you got a willpower crisis, and so your confidence gets shot as you go into this rattled rationalization. Should I? Shouldn't I? I've been walking a long way because my gate's been moved, and so I probably have already burned off more or less the first bite, <laughs> right? And then you're going to put it on your expense report or not put it on your expense report, and then you're going to get this weird look about, really, Cinnabon? You've been telling us how you're trying to get in shape and stuff. And then on a fairly serious level, the question of uh, your appearance, your health, um, and longevity, and uh, when we swallow our stress through food and other things, it gives us legitimate problems in terms of weight, health, hypertension, and, and so on. And so we've got something that was meant for good that now actually becomes a threat to us, and we get in this anxiety cycle of is it good, is it bad? All right? How does column three give us some degree of uh, alleviating that cycle of rationalization. This is a harder one. Column three is the redemption. That's the middle one about this is how does, how does Jesus redeem Cinnabon? All right, this, I'll, I'll say this one because this would, it's like I don't want to be quoted saying something strange about, you know, Jesus and pastries. Um, so let the professional do it. The idea is we'll see there on your picture in column one, the goodness is relived in the life of Christ. Column two's badness is demonstrated in the death of Christ. So in the life, death, and then resurrection of Christ, you see the integration of column one and two. The good of his life, the bad of our failed life brought on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians um, 521. All right. So the point then is in the resurrection of Christ, what you see is good and bad are brought together. And the resurrection says good overcomes bad. 
that's the point of the, the implication of the gospel in a very general sense as related to Cinnabon, as related to what Pastor Greg preached on this last Sunday, as related to the financial crisis and the difficult decisions you're going to be making, or in terms of Will and I were talking about being a contractor and the decision about you've got a plan and then somebody messes up and who needs to own the responsibility of the extra cost. This tension between good and bad, we see in Christ that good ultimately overcomes bad. Not through the delusional practice of moving backwards from column two to column one. In other words, you don't become increasingly naive and revert back to a childish view of I just, if I want Cinnabon, I'll just have Cinnabon. But instead, this sense of the good and the bad in here, there's a way that good will overcome bad, and you move into column four, which is about transformation. Is it appropriate as an adult to occasionally decide to buy, eat, and enjoy Cinnabon? I hope so. And you see Eric doing it, and, you know, Eric's reasonably fit. You're not, you know, <laughs> well, to some of us who would like to get at certain weight levels, yeah, you, you have the appearance of. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the idea is that in transformation, this is really, really important for men coming to church um, and I saw this when I became a Christian as an adult, and I did uh, mission trips to Mexico a lot, and I began to do translation and stuff down there, and I'd go to very poor villages, and one of the things that we'd see is the church had women and children in it, and because you had foreigners coming in and activities and stuff, men would show up, but they would stand at the doors, and they'd stand at the windows. They wanted to hear the message, but they didn't want to identify with the women and children. And part of the reason was because, honestly, religion sounds childish at times. And it's the idea that the world is too scary and harsh, and so we want to go back into fairy tale land where everything is nice and positive and hopeful and wonderful. The gospel, however, pushes us forward instead of backwards. Uh, in the scripture, we hear east of Eden. In other words, in Eden, they're sent out eastward, and this idea of moving eastward is used many times in scripture and it's the sense of moving further away from the paradise of what ought to be to this barrenness of how things are not and that we don't get to our dreams of satisfaction by going backwards we have to go forward which is the entire theme of the book of hebrews which we're going to look at a battle scene here in a little while in hebrews 2 and our goal for when you leave here today is to feel greater competency on how to make decisions about when to eat Cinnabon or other pleasures in life. And then finally, column five is somehow Cinnabon of the goodness of it can be enjoyed without the anxiety and the tension of the difficult decision-making in column four. And that's kind of what I left out. Column four, transformation, is actually about increased wisdom. And so the guy, you guys come in here at 6.30 in the morning, uh, the real motivation is you want to grow in competency, in making wise decisions, and actually living out your values effectively. Because if you show up at church and you go to your life Bible study and you give money and you serve every once in a while, 
you're seen as a good person in the community. This isn't about appearance stuff anymore. You know this is legit because it cost you something, and what we're looking for is to grow in that competency. Uh, there's a really weird passage in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 5, you've got a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is explaining, well, that's just grace. And Paul rebukes them and says, no, that's just weird. He says, pagans even think that's weird. And if you've understood grace to mean empowering entrenched weirdness, you really need to grow up. And he goes into 1 Corinthians 6, and after listing a sequence of bad decisions, he says, isn't there anyone in this room who is wise enough to make a decision to judge in this context? Now, as Christians, are we supposed to judge? Thank you. Yes, we are. Matthew 7 says, do not judge lest you be judged. It's in the context of Jesus saying, what's it going to take for you to go from immature to mature? And he's saying, judging other people will not help you get mature. Criticizing other football players doesn't make you a better football player. If it did, we would all be professionals by now. <laughs> right? Criticizing other people's Judgment-making doesn't make us better, and that's the admonition in Matthew 7. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that you will judge angels? And where he's going with this is that the original creation in how we represent in column 1 is that you're created in the image of God to rule over all the cosmos, which doesn't just include how we deal with, with trees and oil and water supplies and money and animals and so on. It also includes a spiritual realm that we understand very, very little about. But the majesty of humanity is far below what it should be, and the part of redemption is that we grow in the capacity that we're intended to have, which is the wisdom to decide between what is right and wrong according to God's revelation so that wisdom and goodness can be restored. And so part of what we're doing in here is growing in our own competency and confidence. And you made reference to that in your prayer, Eric, which is we talked about at the beginning, 1 John 2, 6, you need to walk as Jesus walked. And you're like, oh, man, that sounds impossible. And then you get to 1 John 2, 28, and it says you, you yourself personally, can be confident and unashamed at his appearing. And either John is delusional and he doesn't realize how complex your life is and your limitations, or the Bible is actually true in understanding the challenges that you face, there still is a way with all your limitations to be confident and unashamed at the appearance of Christ that you have lived appropriately and that you, in seeing him, have a sense of joy, not of shame, not of managing, not of fear, but a sense of, I have lived a good life. I've done what I should do. All right, we need to shift here to storytelling. And I'm going to ask you guys to be thinking about this. I want at every table um, a movie that was really meaningful to you. And the goal is to try and describe the point of the movie in two one, two, or three sentences, no more than three sentences. If you can do it in one sentence, that's great. Essentially, a good, a bad, a resolution. And I'll start us off with this in terms of where I was going with Saving Private Ryan. Does everybody remember the last scene? This is, if you have concerns about spoilers, it's too late. It's been like a decade. <laughs> this is not Star Wars or The Revenant or whatever. 
What's the final scene in, it's both the beginning and the end of the movie. It's a graveyard. And you see Ryan is now an old man, and he kneels down in front of a tomb marker of uh, the captain who helped save him when he was Private Ryan. And he turns to his wife, and he, he begs her for assurance on two questions. Anybody remember what they are? He wants her to tell him two things. Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. And as I've served overseas and, and done all sorts of research in multiple languages and worldviews and movements in history and the rest, I've increasingly become convinced that there are three basic questions that drive every culture everywhere. Am I a good person? Am I living a good life? And the third one ends up often being neglected. It ends up being absorbed through culture is how do I know? Am I a good man? Am I living a good life? How do I know? We soak up how do we know from the narratives we pick up as a little kid, as your mom, your dad, your uncles, your siblings, get ideas in your head of this is the rubric to know whether you're a good person or not. We rebel against that. We struggle with that. We pick up other stuff, but it's often really sort of chaotic. What Crown Heart World does is helps us untangle the narrative of what really defines what does it mean to be a good person, what does it mean to, be a, to live a good life, which fits within that first John 2. All right? So at your table, real quick, try and generate um, a couple movie titles that you all have seen and try to figure out how to say what it is in a couple sentences. First, just come up with some movies, These, and it's always terrible if someone says, what's your favorite movie? That's too high of a burden. What's a movie that had a big impact on you? All right, so everybody at your table, try and come up with a couple movies that had a big impact on you. If they're war movies, that makes it easier, but it doesn't have to be a war movie. If it's a rom-com, we're not going to judge you.
Christ, you got a knock-on effect. No, that's good. That's really good. All right, I'm going to interrupt you in a second. So start a sentence that sounds like you're about to say something really, really wise. Look frustrated and give me your attention. Oh, just getting to the synopsis. All right. Be brave, men. This is warrior's heart. Raise your hand if you chose Les Miserables. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I've made mention of this before, and different times I've taught, sometimes I get worried that I'm going to tell the stories in the wrong sequence and I'll repeat them, but this one's uh, one that, I don't know, hits me every time I tell it. Uh, my family had been living in China in a very remote place for two years. Um, we were flying back to the U.S., and we went through London, and my dad was um, had been a corporate lawyer, left that to be um, a really, really mean negotiator for a European uh, large corporation because uh, the Brits needed help with someone intimidating the Germans, and I think that was his basic job description was to – we need a Texan uh, because we're so courteous it becomes problematic. So anyway, my dad's living in Winchester, uh, which is where King Arthur's Court and all that. Uh, they actually have a round table up there that's somewhat suspect in terms of its historicity. But nonetheless, it's really <laughs> quite interesting. And so I go see my dad, and I'm like, hey, tell me what it's like living here in the U.K. And, and by the way, we're just going with that part as well as we come out. And uh, we live near sugarcane and stuff in China. And one of the things that we were just like, hillbillies fascinated with there in the hotel was the the fineness of the ground sugar and I think people were just really concerned about our obsession with is this salt is this what is this and it's like this is sugar that's what sugar looks like as opposed to big chunks where you can see the sides of each grain uh, anyway so we're still in culture shock and we think wow relative to where we are this must be awesome to live here in the UK and so my dad gives this whole string of things about, of course, the weather and um, the way people drive. And you go to a restaurant and you don't have those sunshiny greeters. Hi, welcome to whatever. But instead, there's this sort of reservedness. And he gave a list of things that were actually cross-culturally difficult for him coming from the U.S. to live in the U.K. Um, that surprised him, whereas we had braced ourselves for China. And so we had a good discussion. I'm like, it's getting really, really negative. So I'm like, was there anything that you are really glad about that you've come here to, to live in the UK? And he goes, theater. What? You know, that doesn't seem to fit here. What do you mean theater? And he goes, I just, I've found that I've just fallen in love with going to, to live theater. And I'm like, like what? And he said, Les Miserables. And he's like, oh, this is getting weird. And I'm like, I haven't read Victor Hugo because I know there's like a really long section about the plumbing system of Paris in the middle of it, and I thought, I'm not going to commit to that book and then pretend that I'm interested and get bogged down in this old history book. And against my better judgment, I asked him, well, what's the basic story? Now, I have you ever done that, or did you just experience that when you've got a story that really matters to you and you try to tell it concisely, and you can see that it's not coming across? And there's this, like, Oh, maybe I should try another approach. Maybe I should give more detail. Maybe I should use more enthusiasm or hand gestures. Um, but it's not working. But that's not what I experienced. And it was one of these like lightning bolt moments 
instead of beginning to describe the French Revolution and a bunch of characters' names that I can't remember, instead he says, all right, it's about a man who's so obsessed with justice that he becomes unjust. And another man, although unjust, finds mercy and becomes just. How many of y'all want to see that story? He pitched it. It was beautiful. And I later took my daughter to see it in London, and it was, you know, one of those really special memories that sticks with me because in all the fanfare and the singing and whatever, um, whether it's in film or in theater or actually reading the original book, all the complexity boils down to this question of two different ways to live. A sense of I need to save my life and my value in life is justice by being controlling. Or I realize that I don't have full capacity in and of myself to control the things that I value most. And that somehow by releasing the things that I value most, I end up receiving by grace the things that matter most. And that's the story. And often what you'll have is one main point with one character that represents the ideal that you're trying to get across and the other that represents the antithesis and a lot of characters in between who show variations on the theme or just provide comic relief and, and whatnot. So in Star Wars, the idea of uh, do I need to use restraint in regard to power for common good or should I just give in and power needs to be used however I feel like it needs to be used? And you have this antithesis that's being told, and then you have the failure of Jar Jar Binks is supposed to be comic relief, but everyone starts laughing at the guy who thought him up as opposed to the relief. And so they're like, we got to get that out of the way. So there's the story. There's two ways to live, obsession over justice and fail or resignation of your limitations and success. Wh and John um, overheard and asked him to redo it, and he did a great job. We'll come back to you in a second. What are some of the things that you guys came up with? Anybody have a reasonably good, you're put on the spot, and you told a story really, really concisely, but reasonably effectively? Or did anyone else at your table do it? Yeah, brag on somebody else if you need to. What do you say? You've been called on. You, yeah. I just thought it was about um, really funny gifs about you've chosen poorly. That was the whole point of that movie. <laughs> where it gets down to where is... And that's the thing. Often we'll fixate on a certain element of a story. So it's got this great scene about where is the cup that Christ drank of, the Holy Grail, and people that assume that it's the gold and wealthy, rich, rich uh, vision instead with wisdom say that he was a carpenter and, and connected with humble people. But you're right. The story is not about the Grail. The story is about a father-son relationship. And that's what makes it meaningful. That's, that's really good. Others that came up. Yeah. Y'all have one? Will, your table? 
What do you have? All right, Shawshank Redemption shows up on people's short list of greatest, most impacting films ever. And that's the thing. When you say, is it the best film, put that aside because the criteria is really difficult. Most impacting. And why? How did you describe that? There you go. And, and this sense of endurance, instead of giving in to despair or acting foolishly, keep looking for a way to eventually be free. It's good. Others, and we'll get back to you in a second, John. Oh, I was making a note to myself. Uh, my mom took me to see the original Rocky, which I thought was weird because I was like middle school. And it's like, what movie are we going to see? It's about a boxer. I'm like, what, mom? Really? <laughs> and one, you know, just as a kid, I liked the boxing. But I was uh, astounded at um, the, the story of love. And that within there, how did you phrase it? It's hard to do, isn't it? Your dreams and not giving up, and even in the midst of whether you succeed or fail in your um, status-giving achievements, that his greatest joy was love. And so even when he loses in the first movie, sorry if you hadn't seen it yet, um, <laughs> he's made an honorable attempt, and he's able to celebrate Adrian. And he calls out, and you're watching, you're like, wow, he, he, he's a winner. Bloody, ugly, inarticulate winner. And that's what we want for ourselves. And that's why we come here is we say, of all the complex stuff that's going on, pressures in my home, pressures at my business, pressures at my church, and all sorts of other issues internal, the question is, how can I find the story that frames what's going on. And, Will, we were talking about that in terms of your job of, that you do now in terms of contractor is you frame a narrative for particular experiences, and it gives you wisdom to make decisions. And so you've got the ideal of how you'd like the story to go. And when something goes wrong, you take what went wrong and you put it into a narrative so people can say, well, do you want to pay all my guys their hourly rate and everything going back for the mistake you made? Or we could frame it this way and you pay less. Which one would you like to choose? And you've expedited some problem solving because you know how to frame the story. All right, this is a huge breakthrough to me when I was sharing the gospel uh, very, very cross-culturally, and I now see it as I come back here. What's the basic story of Scripture? It's not the way that I was primarily exposed to it in uh, 20th century evangelical Christianity, frankly. The things that I was told were true, but they were subplots. They weren't the main plot. On your sheet, take a minute and try to fill in the missing parts. You'll get column two's got a heading and column four's got a heading, and you guys can work at that as, as a group, and try and fill in the symbols that are there and what we're going to pay attention to is you see at the bottom here, the biblical story is actually about life to death versus death to life. And when you get to the book of Acts, you never once hear the disciples explain the gospel in a framework of heaven and hell. And it 
blew my mind when I started scouring through Acts and studying how did they do this, how did they do this. And if you'll remember, Luke ends with Jesus rebuking his disciples that they didn't know the narrative and so they couldn't process their experiences. That he had died and he was alive. Heaven and hell are real, but they're subsets of the story. They're not the main part of the story. That sounds really, really radical, but fill that out real quick as a group and as you are, murmur and decide whether I'm going to get lynched uh, for saying that. And we'll see what the Bible says here in a second. So try to fill out your practice sheet. And again, this is one of those training exercises. It's like doing drills. You know, we just want to scrimmage. It's like, no, do your drills. Your goal is you want to understand this for yourself. You want to be able to share it with other Christians. And then eventually you want to share it with people who are not Christians. This is just a framework for all your ideas and experiences. So try to fill in those uh, boxes. Yeah, good point. Uh, number two in the book says rebellion, but I've tried to make it more consistent. So separation is actually the answer for number two. Yeah. I think Malcolm helped me realize if we're ever going to turn this into um rap, we need a creation, separation, redemption, transformation, completion. Yeah, actually draw out the little pictures in those boxes. It's uh, kinesthetic learning. It's actually more effective. Uh, seems a little bit childish, but it's not. All right, we're going to get ready to process a couple of observations and questions. What I'm going to ask is, who in here has a memory verse that they've mastered or reasonably mastered uh, for John 10.10? 10? Anybody got a paraphrase or a memorization? What's John 10.10? 10? All right, he's come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. What's the phrase right before it? And you've got this antithesis of death and life. <laughs> there you go. And that, he, and that Satan has come to take good things like Cinnabon and bring it towards death. And Jesus has come to take the things that were meant for good that lead to death and through death to lead them back to goodness. And so the overall story then is, what is life? Um, you medical? So just if you could real quick tell us what's life? <laughs> oh, no, he's a philosopher. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you had like numbers and, you know, symbols and stuff. It's really profound, isn't it? One of the things that we make a mistake of is we think of life as a commodity that God has access and he distributes. Like oxygen or gold or whatever. 
God is life. And the deal then is, column one, because God is life, he extends his life into creation, and our life is contingent. It's dependent upon. In in construction terms, it's a load-bearing wall. You can't knock that wall out, or the structure will fall. And that God himself is life. And that in column one, the fact that reality exists Uh, the cosmos and ourselves as conscious, sentient beings who make choices, good or bad, is God is the source of that life, and it manifests through physical properties so that you've got procedures when someone passes from life to death, and you can monitor it, but then you get weird stories of exactly where that line is is really hard, and in um, medical school, I imagine there's been some interesting discussions, right? And it's very, there are religiously as well, but that sense of God is life. So what happens is we move from column one to column two. Separation from God is, by its very definition, separation from what? From life. It's not that God gave you life and takes it back and that it's a third thing. When we separate from God, we are disconnecting from the source of what it means to be a person to make decisions, and to have life. And it's only a matter of time before the implications of disconnecting actually plays out. Again, it's like we've been unplugged from the life support system, and it's not immediate, but the working out of that disconnection from the life support system is death. So the wages of sin, rebellion, separation... You know what you get when you separate from the source of life? The absence of life, which is death. And so it's not as much a um, psycho, um, bitter deity that's taking back goodness. It's the realization that he himself is goodness, and our separation from him is our own condemnation of separation from that goodness. And the realization that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God means that all of us have both been born into a cycle of separation from God and we have ratified the covenant, the treaty, the agreement. We've hit the check button and said continue on we accept the terms of this agreement. When we have chosen to sin as little kids, it's not just that we're born into sin. We're like, yeah, I'll own that and I'll actively do that. And we still struggle with that, right? And so the problem then is life to death is what's gone wrong. And there's a whole uh, series of verses that could go for a very long time on it, but I'll just use a few of them. Um, The soul that sins shall die. Where's that from? Only Niz. From Ezekiel 38, I believe. That all of sin and fallen short of the Lord. Um, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, uh, Romans 6, 23. Um, that this concept of life and death is, is constantly through there. If that's where things have gone wrong, where is the solution then? And this is where Jesus gives a terribly counterintuitive response. How do we regain our lives then? Yeah. And so what you see is, 
in Adam, you've got in the garden where there's life, paradise, bliss, everything the way it ought to be, autonomy from God seems like it's going to give us more life. And if you grew up in the church and your youth group and your parents and your uncles and everyone else told you to do the right thing and you're in church and they were keeping you from all the bad things that you wanted to when you finally had autonomy from all those controlling elements in your life and you could indulge in reckless relationships, um, scrambling your brain cells through whatever substance abuse, getting your adrenaline pumping through high-risk behavior of some sort, and you're like, yeah, finally I found real life. How many of us in this room, the initial response of separating from the healthy-ish community and awareness of God, initially it really did feel like more life. When you go partying, when you first start partying, whether it's drinking or taking a toke or doing a line or just having adrenaline and flirting and seeing where it's going to go, initially you will see a rise. Same thing will happen with Cinnabon. You'll have this initial rise, and then the implications kick in and you have a crash. And what appears to look like more life actually is this launching off into the absence of life with death. Same thing in every ethical decision you're going to make today in your work. In the short term, cutting corners, misrepresenting things, intimidating, manipulating, finding ways to get what you want will give you a short-term buzz that I solved that problem, and it will give you a long-term crash. And the constant thing that we're trained in is how to dominate others because that's the world that we live in now. Be a man, not a boy. Dominate. But it doesn't work. And so Jesus says some crazy stuff that he then acts out in his own life. If we're to follow him, what's the process of following him? What's the imagery of following Christ when he told his disciples? Yeah, if you're going to follow me, you need to follow my plan of dealing with redeeming the goodness in life, which is you have to cut off the good. You have to have the painful instrument of death as the means to getting back to life. Has anyone stuck with a fitness program since January? A fitness program since January. It's some, explain it to him. <laughs> yeah, any January. Initially, when you, when you cut off foods that have you've habitually found as tension release or fun or whatever and just mindless munching, does it feel like you're moving? All right, well, whatever it is, sitting on the couch versus working out, whether it's calorie restriction or pushing yourself towards activity, it feel the burn. What does that mean? What apparently feels like death is actually going to result in life. I'm going to be able to wear T-shirts because, <laughs> yeah, because what seems like I'm foolishly, instead of chilling and relaxing, I'm actually dying to my own short-term gratification to reconnect to long-term gratification. You do that in investing. You do that in relationships. You do that in everything. And Jesus' wisdom is the world will keep lying to you about the way towards life is continual autonomy and dominance. And it doesn't work that way. And instead, discipline, 
and vision of dying towards impulses and living towards long-term life. Real quick illustration might work in this room. How many of y'all saw Gladiator and can remember it kind of? All right, this is a good chunk. In Gladiator, you have a guy of honor who has a real series of tragedies, and he ends up as a gladiator fighter. He had been a great Roman warrior. He was a general and was the, uh, honored by the emperor who gets betrayed by a relative. And so the point then is he ends up, he has no passion for life because his Adrian has been killed. The love of his life, his children, his honor has been lost, his lord that he serves has been lost, and he's ends up being sold into slavery, and now he's got to fight as a gladiator, and he has no sense of fight left in him. Like, what's the point? Then he's thrown into his first major battle with the other slaves, and they're going to reenact the Battle of Carthage, where you're going to see Rome dominate the bad guys, Carthage. And in there, you see all these really tough guys that are each thinking about individual survival and I'm going to do what it takes to stay alive, including one guy who's particularly, I don't know if you can say it here, a badass. You can't? Okay. A really, really tough guy. <laughs> and what does the general then do in that scene that seems counterintuitive to being self-oriented? What does he say? Yeah, he asked a question. Any of y'all serve in the military? I have, I have, I have. Rally around me. And they're like, what? And they yield to his idea. Instead of defending themselves, they lose their individual identity and become part of something greater. And then you even see him with the guy who won't come and join this disciplined response to a chaotic and threatening situation who ends up getting injured. And he runs out there and he grabs the big guy pulls him back in and says, if we fight as a unit, we can overcome the odds, and they do, and it totally destroys the narrative. Y'all with me on this? That's why we go to church, that we're part of a narrative where we've been scattered as if we're going to be the tough guy, living it out economically, sexually, um, satisfaction of every kind that we're going to prove ourselves as self-sufficient to get all of our dreams and aspirations and cravings met. And we celebrate other people who are, frankly, perceive themselves to be badasses. And we're like, that's foolish. And my values and virtues are such that what it may look like I'm humbling myself by getting into this unit is actually wisdom and strength. And I'm no fool. I was serving the Marine Corps. And the thing about the Marine Corps is not that, you know, like, you see Marines, they're not all, like, buff and stuff like that. A lot of them, you get out of boot camp and you're quite thin because you do a lot of cardio. The thing that makes the Marine Corps a particularly strong unit is the mental discipline that you're taught that individually you're not all that, but as a unit you are all that, and you better function as a unit. And we learn to subordinate selfish impulse to totally rally around the unit and the mission at hand and be willing to take sacrifice. That's the story of life to death. No, death to life. I die to myself that we might live. 
And so Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And this idea that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy gets brought with the antithesis. And I've only got like two minutes here. It's all right. We'll do this next week. Hebrews 2. Um, the whole chapter is amazing, but uh, 14 through 18 will be what we'll look at next week because I enjoyed my time and kind of went a little bit long. But what you'll see in there is the role of Jesus as a champion who, like in the movie Troy or something like that, represents the greater people, and he slays the monster on behalf of his people who were afraid to face the problems of death and empowers them to now be able to face the powers of death and overcome death with life. And that's where we're going with this. And as we begin to frame all this better as a narrative of there was life and then there was death, and you don't panic and try to go backwards, through Christ there now is a framework that dying to yourself counterintuitively moves towards life, and that our end game goes through heaven when you die, but heaven when you die is not our end game. If you read the end of 1 Corinthians 15, argument of the resurrection is the whole point of the resurrection is Cinnabon and more. It's that everything that was meant for good that's been twisted towards evil will finally be reconciled such that heaven and earth are able to be enjoyed constructively without death or decay or perversion or weirdness. And the imagery is about physical meals physical presence together and God's original tension of heaven and earth being brought together. It's also the Lord's prayer. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is a pledge of allegiance. Our heavenly father, we take your name so seriously. The way you run things up there, we want you to run them down here. Right? The way it is in heaven, bring it. That's a statement of allegiance. And we say, help me with my physical needs today. Lord, because you're our Father and you run things right in the heavenly realm, we pray that the heavenly realm will invade the, the earthly realm and that specifically give me my daily bread. Help me have what my body needs to live and function in this world biologically. But not just give me what I need biologically. Give me what I need relationally. When I make a mistake in my ethics, in my panic, in my fear, don't make me as if I'm in allegiance to death because I'm not. I've changed sides. I'm in allegiance with life. Forgive me my trespasses the same way I forgive other people who are acting loyal to death instead of loyal to life when they panic and they lie, manipulate, intimidate, and so on. And don't only help me with my physical needs and my relational needs. Help me with my spiritual needs. Protect me from the evil one. Protect me from the enemy who wants to bring me over to the dark side. Help me to stay loyal that I'm part of your kingdom and I'm rallying around you and that your kingdom will come on this earth as it is in heaven. And the ultimate final story as you get to Revelation 21 and 22 mirrors the beginning, which is we start in a paradise garden with two people and we end up in a garden city with a multitude of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that overall story then you're going to be living out today in battles and skirmishes Stand with life, not with death. All right, I'm going to end it. Anybody wants to stay and talk can. Father, I just thank you that you are Lord, you are Father, and that you know everything is wrong with this, and yet you love us. And you tell us that through Christ, we not only receive a gift of forgiveness and belonging, we also find a new way to live, that in dying to ourselves, 
we actually find rich, abundant, fulfilling life. Give us wisdom to apply this today in ethical decisions, in joy, in attitude, in confidence, that, Lord, we can extend life to others even if they get caught up in the fear of death and end up acting weird towards us, that we actually offer hope and a sense of stability and calm in doing that. We so thank you for the great story we're a part of. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Your heart's in the